In 2010, I graduated from school at SMU in Dallas, and my mom and I decided to have a girls' trip to Austin to celebrate her 50th birthday. We got matching tattoos, cowboy boots, we walked up and down South Congress, had dinner at Uchi, and went to a Bob Schneider concert. As I was walking around Austin and seeing all the friendly people and hearing their stories, I realized at some point I would live here and Austin would be home. My name is Alex Williamson, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley. I'm Omar Gayaga. And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman. In this week's episode, we visit with Karen Kelleher, the owner of Austin's Gold Rush Vinyl, a manufacturer that's modernizing the making of record albums. The Weird Homes Tour started in Austin in 2014, but now it's gone national. We talked to founders David and Shelley Neff about what exactly makes a home weird. In this week's web report, Eric Webb unwraps the mystery of the dilly dog. Would you eat a hot dog stuffed in a dill pickle and then deep fried like a corn dog? And we'll conclude, as always, with a toast, our recommendations for stuff you ought to be checking out. But let's begin with Karen Kelleher, who has just launched Austin's only large-scale vinyl album manufacturing business, Gold Rush Vinyl. Hi, Karen. Welcome to I Love You So Much. Thank you so much for having me. So, Karen, you are the owner of Gold Rush Vinyl, and you've recently set up shop in Austin. Tell us what Gold Rush Vinyl is and why you chose this city. Gold Rush Vinyl is Austin's first vinyl record manufacturing plant. We make records right here in downtown Austin. Uh, I moved here from California to start this business, partly because of how many bands were in this market that needed vinyl made. Vinyl's become such an important revenue stream, especially for independent bands, and Austin was a great place to set up shop. Yeah. So, so tell us how you went from you working at Google. I was. Although we yeah. buried the lead there. Uh, <laughs> working at Google in, in, in the music area. Yeah, I was the head of music partnerships for Google Play. So I looked after Google's relationships with Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio. And what brought you from that to like band management and then from band ma- management into manufacturing? Yeah, I was always managing bands while working at Google. They um, really encouraged that because it gave me kind of a, a firsthand look at what was actually happening on the grounds in the music industry. And one of the things I was seeing was how many young kids were buying vinyl at shows. I would be working at Mer- tables and these 16 year old kids would come up and buy a record and I'd say to them do you even own a record player and often they'd say no I just want the band to sign it or I just want to own this They're like yes yeah. <laughs> yeah talk to us about that craving for analog because um, earlier off Mike we were talking about you know the fact that vinyl has survived even when CDs haven't but CDs you can also touch and feel so what's the deal with that yeah I think one of the big misconceptions about vinyl is that it's been driven by the resurgence, at least by audiophiles, people who really crave that deep sound. I think there there is truth to that. But what we're seeing and hearing is that people want to have this experience that you can with vinyl when you drop the needle and you can't fast forward through a song. You have to experience it. And especially for younger buyers, 16 to 24 year olds, um, the act of like owning a piece of music is so novel to them. And to have that to take a picture on Instagram, to have on your shelf, it says something about you to other people and what your music taste is. Isn't that such a poignant response that young people today want to slow down? 
Well, well, my brother, who is actually more, way more visually inclined than I am, like he's he's way into vinyl, and he displays it in his living room. Like it's all part mm-hmm. of his. Oh yeah, you like know, art pieces. Look. The W Hotel has that great listening room with the vinyl all displayed on the walls. So yeah, so something that fascinated me was that there are only two women-owned plants in the world. In the world. And one is here in Austin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, first of all, great job there. Thank um, you. Second of all, like, um, tell us about your team. Like, what kind of team have you brought in to bring this thing to life? I got so lucky finding a great team here in Austin. I really did. Um, the first hire I made was a gentleman named Gator Russo, who's our operations director. He had previously worked at Build a Sign and helped scale that business. And the insight he brought as a non-music industry manufacturer into this has been so insightful because it gives us a fresh set of eyes to look at this old business that hasn't seen a lot of innovation since the 1960s and say, what would we do if we could build it differently? We also got really lucky to hire a press operator um, named David Mendoza, who's from Texas, wanted to stay in Texas, but he's worked at three other pressing plants in America. And so he brings knowledge from all kinds of machines and has pressed thousands of records. And so we're really excited to keep hiring. But, you know, I, I wanted to assemble a team that didn't come from vinyl through and through so that we could look at things and question why it's done that way. So many people tell me, well, you'll just learn, Karen. It's That's the way it's always been done. And it just doesn't work in an era when you could, I don't know, be changing the way things are done for the better. It kind of reminds me of an episode we did last year when we were interviewing uh, the founder of Casita, those tiny houses mm-hmm. that are... Um, I mean, it, it kind of looks like if Apple designed a house, this is what it would look like. And the founder deliberately brought in non-architects to see this vision through to get out of that lockstep thinking. So without getting in the weeds too much, can you tell us about some of the innovations you've made to make this a more uh, profitable, efficient business? Well, one of the first things was I bought brand new automated machinery. The way that records have been pressed traditionally has been manual. You have to have an operator melt plastic into what's called a biscuit. It looks like a hockey puck. Then pick that up, put labels on either side of it, put it through a hydraulic press to press it down into a record shape, then physically take that off and trim it. And that process is so manual, and you can imagine people get injured so often getting their hands stuck in machinery. And those machines aren't even really made anymore. So I invested heavily in new machines, but also in the infrastructure that runs our plant. I would put money on saying that Gold Rush Final has the best infrastructure of any plant in America, and partly because we brought in a construction and engineering team who worked in different industries. They built breweries here in town. They've built the Coca-Cola plant. They've built Kroger's. It was just really cool to have them come in and give a fresh set of eyes and say, well, maybe we should you know, think about you know, X, Y, Z instead of the, the blueprints that you've been given by other plants. Got it. Cool. Now, the vision you have is that this won't just be a factory, but a place where people can actually come and visit. Bands can have listening parties. Um, fans can pluck their newly pressed vinyl right off the line. Tell us more about that future gold rush to come. Yeah, if you walk into our facility, you'll see that we're planning for future growth. It's an 8,400 square foot space. We can press 2 million records a year right now, but have room to grow up to 6 million and still have this event space. And one of the reasons I wanted to move to Austin was the number of bands that come through here touring and that have time on their hands to do these kinds of fan experiences where you know we can have a band invite a small set of fans into hand paint record covers with them or to hear the record. It also helps us to have bands come in and hear their test pressings, it's called, which is a test run of the record and give us the thumbs up and say, yeah, this is good to take to press. Um, So I want it to be more of an experience for fans, especially in this era where 
people have digital but want to have a vinyl experience that's uninterrupted. It just feels more akin to where this is all going as an industry. And you were telling us that um, Gold Rush kind of just had its soft launch uh, during South by Southwest. How did that go? How, how was being part of South by Southwest this year and, and what was the feedback you got from, oh, from it those was, events? It was amazing to finally show off what we've been working on. Um, this plant got up and running really fast. I mean, we got our permits in December and had it ready to go in March, which is three months of really hard work that I'd as, like to forget. As all the South by Southwest permitting yeah. is happening at the same time. Yeah, and it was a good forcing function for us to have South by as a, a, a thing to work towards and loved having music industry folks come through, brand partners um, and bands to see what we've been working on. And it gave us a good sense for these future tours and opportunities that we do want to have in the space, like what other ideas could we bring in from other people. So as far as I know, there's only one other... Um, place in Austin that, that presses records and that, that is uh, Austin Signal and they do sort of s- small runs, correct? Yeah, and John's been such a friend to us, um, John at Austin Signal. Um, he hand cuts records, so for small runs um, each record is individually cut. And it's that process you describe where it's like the act- the doing it all by hand. Yeah, except he's not using a pressing machine and I think that's the big difference for us is um, what Austin Signal does is to hand cut each record using what's called a lathing machine. Lathing machines are really hard to come by, actually, in the industry. It uses a diamond or a ruby-tipped um, stylus pen to cut grooves into an enamel-covered disc. It's crazy to watch. It's so fun. And then you're dealing with jewel thieves trying to get into your place all the time. I know. I was like, that's so expensive to replace those needles if they break. Um, Trump is listening to this right yeah. now. He's like, I need to get into the record business. I, I want with, a diamond-tipped pen. <laughs> but for an, for an Austin, for a city that prides itself so much on being a music town, mm-hmm. it's so strange that we haven't had this kind of facility before. Yeah, and I, it's exciting to you know work a lot in sending jobs to John and vice versa because we really want to serve at Gold Rush Vinyl those artists that have had a difficult time getting vinyl pressed. Um, When I was a band manager, I was hearing turnaround times of four to six months, which in an era when you can order just about anything on your phone at a moment's notice is way too long to ask somebody to wait. Um, Our pressing plant instead, because we use, you know, these new manufacturing models can do it in four to six weeks. And so to have the ability for bands to get shorter amounts of vinyl quicker and then also have these experiences like what John can do at Austin Signal, which is to hand cut records, really gives artists options when they're selling merch to fans. And then maybe you can connect with Favor and have a little bike courier connect <laughs> those records and deliver it right to fans. Yeah. Um, okay, let's dish a little bit. So you told us that you came from Google, but you began to see a lack of innovation in the digital music space, which I think to most people hearing that will be like, what? Yeah. Like, you can do anything in the digital so why? Well, if you think about it, all of these great music apps that exist out there pretty much have the exact same functionality. You can play, fast forward, add to playlist, share. And where I just saw kind of a, a stalemate in digital music was that it's now just a race to marketing. It's whose services can be, you know, better resonate with fans, who has the better catalog. But really, there wasn't much competitive advantage there. And especially now that, you know, we have all these devices that connect all these apps to your home. I just was more and more fascinated with how do we bring innovation to an industry that no one has looked at? Because certainly when vinyl went away in the 90s and 2000s, no one was saying, well, how do we innovate on a dying format? You know, the plants that survived barely did. And now that we're in this resurgence, it felt like a really cool challenge to to come in and say, could we do it better? And it seems like there's been this pivot too, where uh, with the rise of the MP3s, everybody's like, oh, the album is over. People aren't going to be making albums anymore. They're just going to be coming out with individual tracks when they want to or whatever. And that 
really hasn't happened. Like we've sort of come back to the the album as an event. When Beyonce comes out with Lemonade, drops a new album, yeah. to say, it's an like, event. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so it seems, feels like rec- like the album as a statement has made a comeback. And vinyl, especially as a medium for that, is so important for bands. What I was seeing when I was a band manager is that the average American musician will earn the same amount of money selling 100 vinyl records that they will from almost half a million Spotify streams and 2.5 million YouTube royalties. So if you're a small band especially and you can get access to vinyl, it could be a very profitable revenue channel. Now, what I love about this too, you were talking about innovation and the thing where the, the it seems like the biggest fall pitfall of the digital space is that it um, deleted out the experiential sense of bringing people together and being able to like come and like have a listening party. So, talk to us a little bit more about you mentioned that vision that you want to have with um, people coming and experiencing this in person. But did you see that coming to Austin would help restore that exper- experiential sense of music with the vinyl resurgence? When I was looking around at where to build this plant, I felt Austin more than other cities was really thinking about the whole of the music experience, whether it's how do musicians continue to live here? Where are the live, how do we sustain live venues here? Where do we carve out rooms like at the Hotel Van Zant, for example, to have listening experiences? It just felt like in the DNA of Austin that this was something important and this was a place that would really um, like welcome a record pressing plant and find creative ways to help us grow our own business more so than other cities where they're, where it's a lot more fast paced and I do think that the speed of Austin certainly lends itself more to vinyl too well one of the questions we've been asking ourselves I think as a city is how do we support these musicians that are facing rising costs of living that are being driven out of being able to live in the city and the the answer we get from musicians that we've talked to is you know buy what you can directly from the musicians you know go to their shows buy from the merch table you know as opposed to you know iTunes where you're they're getting a 30% cut or whatever so, you know, this seems like this is a really good way to support musicians is buy, buy the albums directly from them at their shows or, or wherever they are. And fans seem to know that, too. When I was working at these merch tables, people would say, oh, I could get it online, but I'd rather buy the vinyl because I know you guys are going to get all the money. Mm-hmm. And so p- people are wising up to that. And I think, too, the experience of actually buying a record from the band at the show is so cool and getting them to sign it or just knowing like, hey, I brought that, brought that home from me from that experience I just had that was so special to me. Whereas digital, I mean, d- don't get me wrong, digital music absolutely has a place in all of this, especially the convenience of it. But it is nice that you can sometimes slow down and have this deeper experience with the album as it was meant to be hear- heard. And sometimes you get both. Sometimes you buy the LP and you're going to get the digital copy of it as well. Yeah, we do digital download cards in a lot of the albums that we press and um Increasingly, I'm seeing actually less of that, but people know people are smart. They know where to find the digital music if they want it, but also to have the vinyl on their shelf. Yeah. Well, that beautiful vinyl on your shelf sounds like a great place to end. So, Karen, tell us where we can visit you. For some reason, I'm just suspecting that your social media channels are cool and beautiful. <laughs> are they? <laughs> I hope so. We've got some <laughs> some interns coming this summer to make them even better. But um, we're at Gold Rush Vinyl on pretty much every social media channel. Um, and we are looking to have a public um, tour during Record Store Day, which is Saturday, April 21st. So if people from the public want to follow along and track the journey, we'd love to show you how vinyl records are made here in town. Awesome. Cool. Well, listeners, you know where to find Goldrush Vinyl and bands. Get in touch. Uh, Karen, thanks so much for being on. I love you so much. Thank you. Have you ever seen a drawbridge in a backyard? You will at the Weird Homes Tour. It's April 21st from 10 to 6 p.m. right here in Austin. 
Here's David and Shelley telling us what you can expect. Welcome, David and Shelley Neff. How are you guys? Doing good. Thank you. So, the Weird Homes Tour. Um, can I just ask you guys, what was the inspiration for this? Like, did you just think, okay, homes in Austin are getting too hip. We need to just go, <laughs> to go back to the roots. No, I tell people it, it stems from my pure nosiness. Uh, I, David and I were walking around our old neighborhood, which was Crestview, and we saw this home, and it looked like the Alamo. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to see the inside of that so bad. And uh, he, I was like, babe, do you, do you think there's like a Keep Austin Weird Homes tour? And he's like, there's got to be. And uh, we, you know, we go to the Chicken Coop tour. We go to the Tribeza tour, the Modern Homes tour, anything we could go to. We loved it. And I, and I was like, let's look it up and go on it. And he does a, some research and he comes back to me and he's like, there's not one in town. And he did some more research and he even looked up weirdhomestour.com and he was like, babe, I think it's a sign. I think we should do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, we have a, a real daytime job. So you got it. And he did, He was like, no, I really think we can do this. So I t- I'll t- tell people it just stemmed from me being purely nosy and walking around. If only David are entrepreneurial. Like, I know, <laughs> right? Only, yeah, yeah. All great Austin ideas come from an <laughs> unsuccessful Google search. Yeah. <laughs> it come up. Totally, you can do it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, you know what? Let's let's pause there for a second and talk. What are your day jobs? What? How, where do people know you from besides the Weird Home Store? And then we'll go back to that. So, my I own Urban Betty Salon, and I um, actually have been in the salon industry for over 22 years. And I've owned Urban Betty for 13 of that. Mm-hmm. So I was at the uh, American Cancer Day for about eight years and did a lot of e-commerce and digital strategy. And then I've been uh, doing consulting um, for the last eight years. Um, so social media club here in town, um, just uh, a lot of different stuff with Tali and Omar back in the day as well <laughs> for social media. So And when you guys first started doing the, and I've known you both for a while, yeah. when you first started doing like, oh, this is going to be like a fun little side gig they're going to do, it'll be fun. But like it's turned into a whole thing unto itself. It's in more cities, is that correct? Yeah. Yep. So we're in uh, Austin, Houston, New Orleans, and then this year we're adding Portland, and we're adding Detroit, and then Dude. we just came out with a book this week as well. Whoa. Yeah. It's so exciting. So, okay, I actually bought my mom tickets to the Weird Homes Tour for Christmas, so can you tell my mom and all listeners, really, what they can expect? Because I feel like this is a strong counterpoint to Modern Homes Tour. Yeah. They can expect one amazing difference that we have is every homeowner is in their home and we usually have around eight to ten homes and it's one day it's self-guided self-paced from 10 to 4 and not only do you get to see this amazing decorating architecture you actually get to pick the brains of the person behind it oh that's so that's so unique Mm -hmm. yeah because these homes like they're really colorful and artistic and arts and craftsy you know like walk us through just one of these homes what it feels like inside so our VIP home for this year um, is the Bloom House, which is this crazy organic structure built between 75 and 82 out in the middle of the woods in Westlake by uh, architecture students who are now famous architecture professors. Um, now, now, when you say built between those, it, 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 it like took that, that long to that build That time it? frame, that's correct. Okay, gotcha. We are talking five people in the woods building a home. Uh, over time. And it looks <laughs> With like beer, probably. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and other substances. Uh, and it sprung up 
and it looks like it's just grew. It's a giant mushroom house. And so everything is super loops and swirls and everything's curved. There's like no straight lines in the house. And again, it looks like you would walk through the woods and stumble upon this thing. And that's just one example of the houses on the tour. And it's still standing. That's significant. There's two of them. Uh, and they both are. Uh, the former mayor of Westlake bought it and he's rehabbing it. So you can imagine there's some TV show to be made of like strange Sweet. home rehabs, right? Haha, <laughs> rehabbing. Cool. <laughs> so, okay. So it's self guided. People are going to see a mushroom in the woods. I know there was a draw bridge at one point from like mm-hmm. a kid's room to his tree mm-hmm. house. Yep. Um, are the people who inhabit these homes, they're clearly artists. Are these your old Austinites from back in the day? Um, like, give us a sense of, like, the flavor of these people. Or are they not? Are they people that moved here and decided to make it their own? You know, a few are people that have just moved here, but a good percentage of them are artists that have been here since the 70s. And that's why these homes are so amazing, because they have literally lived in them since the 70s and I'm still working on them to this day and changing them and doing things in these houses or their piece of art and um, that's a lot of times people ask us how we find the homes and a lot of these weird homeowners actually know each other there's like this centralized network and they tell each other about you know how to get I'm on this tour and you should go see so and so's house and and it's just grown and grown and grown from that is there, is there any, like, one-upmanship in that of, like, people like, I know I'm going to have the weirdest home in Austin. No, I'm going to top that mushroom house. I'm going to make a mushroom house with, like, a Mario on top of it. I think the, I think the beauty is, yes, uh, absolutely, there's definitely some competition there. I think they also all just end up at the same art galleries and, and the same exhibitions. We spent, like, two hours with Steve Weinman from Uncommon Objects yesterday. And, of course, Steve has a weird house. As you can imagine from the store, what doesn't make it into the store makes it into his home. But he's also just a professional traveling artist who does these amazing uh, exhibitions. And so he goes to Portland and is like, oh, I got like 12 people you need to meet. And so that's the beauty of our business model is it's all kind of word of mouth, right? Yeah. Now, talk to us about some of these other cities because New Orleans, that sounds amazing. Portland, that sounds also amazing. Um, Can you like... Uh, is the architecture there different? Are the artistic sensibilities there different? Like what, you know, why these cities? I can start on that for sure. I think, I think Houston's really interesting and you may think of Houston as giant art museums and public art displays, but really there's the Houston art car parade that's gone on for like 20 years with the funkiest, craziest cars. Um, It's a great Google search. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, those people have strange homes and they all know each other. So in Houston, we had a lady who's obsessed with hippos and has like 3,000 hippos in her house. Some are hidden, some are not, right? Paintings, floorboards, <laughs> stuffed animals. And then she introduces us to a guy named Lester Marx. Lester Marx has $25 million worth of modern art and art of all types in his home. And he has like paintings on the floor where like, you like walk by and trip into them that are worth who knows how <laughs> it's much. It's like a right? hoarder, mm-hmm. but <laughs> art collecting. And, and beautiful, <laughs> right? A- like, And he has art installations in his home. So he hires someone and he's like, see that room? Do what you're going to do. And they wow. just design it like meow wolf level of, of beauty and entertaining. Um, so he's 
just the complete opposite maybe of some of the other folks, but I love that we get to explore both their houses and so did the general public, right? Your mom's going to be like Alice through the looking glass. Oh, Mm -hmm. Christy (laughs) Mosley. Looking forward to it. You had me at hidden hippos. I want to go to (laughs) Houston. Come on down. Come on down. Uh, So now now that you've got the book out, like tell us about that. How did the book project come together and, and what can people find in the book? Well, again, it was David going, I've got this idea. I mean, I had the idea. He went with it, but he had the idea about the book. And so he was like, we should make a coffee table book and put we've got all these beautiful photos and they need to be seen and they need to be seen because there's, you know, 19 of these homes are in the book from Austin and three of them already are not around anymore. And so we really wanted to preserve these homes and a book was the best way to do it. And yet the mushroom house. Yeah, still, still What what <laughs> happened to those three other homes? So yeah, uh, go ahead. One was just a, a victim of property taxes, and I can't afford to live in Austin anymore. Wow! And it really speaks to the creative class in Austin. Yeah. Where are they going? Where can they afford to live? Great. Those folks are in Smithville now, right? Yeah. And and doing their art in Smithville and not in Austin. And another one was two folks that. Um, uh, we're like, hey, we need to retire, and this is a lot of work, <laughs> and we're going to retire to Amarillo, um, and maybe we'll do a weird home out there, but we need to sell this because we just can't keep up with it. So uh, there's always these really interesting stories of folks who are either maybe not have the time to take care of it, or they just can't afford to live in Austin. Anymore. Yeah, yeah. There's something about weird home store that reminds me of a bygone era in Austin, um, like art cars. You just see less art cars now, yeah. but like that's why I'm so glad that you guys are doing it because it reminds us that it's not gone. Yeah. So in your in your mind, what like what are the boundaries of what constitutes a weird home? Because I feel like as more money is coming into town, as more weirdly eccentric <laughs> Elon Musk types might, be yeah, we might like see what a, is weird yeah, exactly? Like, like weird might be like you know Futuristic. a tower. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Our definitions of weird might change. Sure, I yeah, think that that perspective is is just the eye of the beholder. So what I may find weird, Tolly may go, I don't know. Uh, That's <laughs> so, pretty normal. Yeah. Hippos in the floorboards. David and I just go and look at these homes and we kind of gauge it on. They, we've had some homes where we're like, That's not weird enough or only the yard is weird, but it can be the structure, the the architecture and or it can just be the design inside. It can look totally normal from the outside. You never know. So it's it's basically our opinion if it's weird or not. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so entirely <laughs> subjective. Weird. Yes, exactly. Weird. But they're all very colorful. And that's what mm-hmm. I mean by that counterpoint to modern home store because, and, and I really like this style, but I feel like everything is like Liz Lambert, gleaming white walls with Southwest textiles. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And like, I, I printed out photos to give my mom tickets this year and they were like, pink walls and purple furniture yes. and like yep. stuff all over the walls. You know, it is mm-hmm. maximalism. Mm-hmm. One house has 26 different paints uh, colors in it. That's so, what I'm yeah. talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's the beauty though of Austin, right? Is that, and we love the Modern Homes Tour is that you can go to that a weekend and then like four weekends later you can go to ours and then in between there's like a pond tour and a chicken <laughs> coop Sweet. tour yeah. and like everything else you can imagine, right? <laughs> there's no shortage of things to like get off your butt, stop watching Netflix, which is really hard for all of us yeah. mm-hmm. and go out and, and see, you know, real life, right? Cool. Where can people find information about the tour and the book? Sure. So uh, weirdhomestour.com. Uh, our book's at Book People. It's at Amazon. It's in stores all across the United States. Uh, and it's just called Weird Homes. Uh, so nice and easy to go to our website. That's the same thing for our Instagram as Weird Homes Tour. Awesome. Well, Nefs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks.
got Eric Webb with us for a web report. Eric, what do you got for us this week? Well, I've got two things in one for my friends Omar and Addy today. Question number one, do you like corn dogs? Yes. I could go for a corn dog, sure. Okay, question number two, do you like a giant dill pickle? Yes. I mean, okay. Eat it on it all day <laughs> yeah. long. Okay, question number three, would you like to have a giant dill pickle and a corn dog spliced together into some horrible genetic monstrosity? Blah. Yes. What? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like relish on a hot dog, right? But well, around the but hot internally, dog. I guess. Well, the split reaction I am receiving from the hosts of I Love You So Much is not dissimilar to the split reaction of the internet to the <laughs> Dilly Dog, which is available at Texas Rangers baseball games. And to tell you a little bit, a little bit about what a Dilly Dog is, it is a giant dill pickle cord with a hot dog shoved in it and then the whole thing is deep fried on a stick like a corn dog. Oh, okay, because I saw in your article that it said hot dog, and I was like, okay, but what, what's the corn dog element? The corn dog element is the outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it made a lot more sense to me when I saw the picture. Yes. So go to austin360.com and find the picture. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, yeah, it looks more like a corn dog than I expected it to. Yeah, well, it kind of looks like like a pimento loaf situation, like because <laughs> the mm-hmm. picture has it bisected. Almost like an egg yolk mm-hmm. a little bit. Uh, like, a, like a really sick egg yolk, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. All of this is pretty twisted if you think about it. It is. Well, and so this is sort of of the genre of crazy stadium food, crazy Texas State Fair food. Appropriate for seen. Dallas, then. That must be why we're seeing it out of, mm-hmm. you know, Everything, Fort Worth area. Everything deep fried. Everything deep fried. We've seen things like this, like at the State Fair of Texas with the deep fried butter, the deep fried Oreos, you know, the deep fried... Cookie dough. Coca-Cola. Dough, deep fried Jello. Oh, which I still don't know how the deep fried Coca-Cola works. <laughs> that doesn't seem physically possible. <laughs> It's a scientific mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen Annihilation yet? No. <laughs> okay. I don't want to spoil anything from Annihilation, but let's just say this is not too different from the movie Annihilation starting right now. The crazy genetic of. mutations. Yeah, just stuff. some okay. crazy genetic Got mutations. It. So uh, the Dilly Dog is actually part of a full menu for 2018 from Delaware, Delaware North, which is the Rangers' food partner. Uh, they've also got... A ham fries, which actually I would really get down on some ham fries, to be honest with you. This is like French fries, but they're made ham. of ham. Yeah, but ham. Okay, I'm just dying over here. A bacon brisket bologna sandwich and a Cheetos jalapeno bacon dog. This sounds like a word salad grab bag of all the things you would eat mm-hmm. in the junk food aisle at the grocery store or at a f- carnival, and then just pl- mix them together and and mix them up. See, here, here's my here's my theory on mashup carnival foods one sounds awesome like for deep fried oreos i'm down deep fried macaroni and cheese i'll try that once but you put it all together collectively like on um uh last week tonight on uh with john stewart or john stewart the other one john oliver <laughs> they did a segment where they just sort of showed a bunch of them in a row yeah you know like clips from different news shows yeah. and it's disgusting when you see yeah. them all together like in a line but when you mm-hmm. when one individually i'm down once confronted with the bulk of your inhumanity, Omar, you are forced <laughs> to collective. truly reckon with they, what a monster you are. Because it, it's always like, you know, the burger made of donuts and things yeah. like that. And But when you see them all stacked on top yeah. of each other, it's it, your your insides react. Yeah. Well, like we said, people love this. Texas loves this specifically. There's places in Austin that do, that are dead, like Gordo's. Gordo's is place. basically all that. <laughs> it's basically just dedicated to this concept. Mm-hmm. You know, there's also a dessert taco place in town now. That sounds great. From a food truck. Who doesn't love a choco taco? I'm, I'm just impressed with entrepreneurs who have figured out 
ways to get ten, twelve dollars out of us when I am already at a ball game and I'm like, all right, I got my beer money and I got my hot dog money. I don't have an I don't have another thirty five dollars for all these other crazy things you got <laughs> for it's, batter it's and oil. <laughs> carnival, you know, you're walking around the carnival dropping money <laughs> like yeah. it's a hot bag of potatoes. But um, you know, these carnival people have figured out that they can come up with these new, sexy, intriguing, can't miss products, and so then you're just dropping dropping the dollars all over the place. Well, readers had a lot to say about the dilly dog. Sexy was not one of the words used <laughs> specifically because it's too literal. It's a little too literal. <laughs> but uh, this the, the hot bag of dilly dogs uh, inspired comments such as one from Matt George who said, "Your food scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should." The ethical consideration. The ethical consideration, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Of course. Uh, Chanel E. Fortney says, "I would eat it. It's like having relish on your hot dog." Eddie. Echoing Addie's point. I'm mm-hmm. a food writer. Exactly. And Christina Carolina Granja says, they ruined the corn dog, which I feel very similar to that person. There's still corn dogs. You can still have a corn okay, dog. Okay, so in our house, we have something called a pancake dog, which oh, is- Oh, pancake dogs. We have oh. some of those in our freezer right those? now. those? Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if everybody- This is a, st- that's a standard. Like a, that's like a breakfast sausage with a pancake, pancake around wrapped it. around yeah. on a stick. Yes. That you microwave. Yes. Sometimes yeah. Avery will have a pancake dog in the morning and then a corn dog in the afternoon, and I feel like a real winner. But you know what? They're yeah. delicious. Oh, I will Ride or die for a pancake dog. Do you dip it in honey? Uh, I would think I think syrup would be my go-to for that. Oh yes, they already taste kind of syrupy though. Yeah. They already have a syrup. So what condiments come with this? Are you supposed to eat it with ketchup? I don't know. Mustard? I think you, it seems like you could get. It doesn't specifically say, uh, but I think you could receive any sort of ballpark condiment to go. Lastly, with it. how much would you pay for a dilly dog? I would not pay for a dilly dog because <laughs> I think it is an affront to God. <laughs> what would you pay for? What do you eat Your pickle at, God. at baseball stadiums? Nachos. Nah. Nachos. You can't pay me to eat stadium Give me nachos. some of that Rico cheese. Oh, I yeah. Know. Yes. Rico's premium cheese you can get at H-E-B. Uh-huh. Um, this seems like a dippable. Like you would yes. have a, a cheese sauce or something you would dip it in. Ooh, some Rico's premium cheese. Then you'd eat it. Then I would actually consider it. So, what, what do we think in general about carnival foods? I mean, Addie, it sounds like you will try some of these things. Yeah, got- I'm, I'm pretty eye rolly about it though at this point because I think that it is uh, not very many of them are very, are actually good. I mean, I've had a couple. Of, I, I don't go to the state fair and like participate in the. I, sometimes some of my peers are judging those contests. I could not even judge those. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the fried cookie dough was fine, but it was just not eight dollars fine. You know, it was. Two bites and I was totally done. My, we couldn't even finish one little ball of it altogether. And so mainly I just like it, I become cheap when I'm mm-hmm. at these places. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to spend money on that. But at baseball stadiums, I'll, I'll pay for other things that I think are uh, not a deal, but that are at least not a total waste of my Giant money. Giant foam finger. <laughs> not a total. Yeah. But yeah, it's gimmicky. They're generally yeah, not healthy. You're never you're never it, it, no one's doing this kind of crazy stuff with salads. It's all like <laughs> it's all like wieners and a batter deep, and a deep fried salad, maybe. Could be the next. Innovation. I tried deep fried bacon um, at Worst Fest. Well, that just seems redundant. it was. Ter- it was not good. Yeah, I was not not impressed. See, it, this is where it's like a little goes a long way when it comes to fried foods. So I'd like to see us get creative in other genres. When I was seventeen, some friends and I played with our friend's dad's deep fryer, and we just did that thing that seventeen-year-old boys do, where they just dump a bunch of things into a deep Cor- fryer. Cornballing. Is that what it's called? Cornball? <laughs> Arrested Development, they had the cornballer. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, I can attest to that. The biggest success was the uh, powdered sugar donut deep fried. Oh, see that? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, now you have air fryers, so it could be even, even healthier. Oh, shoot. An air fried dilly dog. Coming soon to a food section near you. Why not deep fried vegetables? Why is, why is nobody doing that? Well, I guess they are. I guess you it's got called your, tempura. Your fried, no. <laughs> your fried zucchini, your fried, um, yeah, fried sweet pickles. Pickles. Yeah. Fried pickles. Fried pickles. 
There we go. Fried pickles. You know what I think we really have to do to thank for this is the inventor of the funnel cake. Mm-hmm. Without the inventor of the funnel cake, we would not have any of this mm-hmm. because we would not have batter in which, I mean, corn dog, maybe corn dogs might have even come first. But the idea that at it's commonplace at these places to have a big vat of oil and batter that you can then get bored and dip things into. You know what we would have if we didn't have the funnel cake? What? Longer lifespans. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, um, catch Eric's web report. Where can they find that online? Austin360.com slash web report. Web with two Bs, like my last name. Thank you, Eric. And we'll see you at the State Fair eating a Philly dog. Nope. Yeah, fried Oreos on me. Oh, fried Oreos, actually. I'm down. Let's do it. We've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast. This is where we go around the table making some recommendations of things we feel you, our listeners, should check out. So, Addie, let's start with you. So, I finally watched the documentary Searching for Sugar Man. Oh, and so this is from, did you love it? It was, it was beautiful. So, um, I mean, first is a recommendation. If you don't know about Sixto Rodriguez, go look it up. He's this musician who in the 70s was, you know, up and uh, by up and coming, I mean, like trying to get a start in um, Detroit, recorded just maybe an album or two in the early 70s. Somehow a copy of that got to South Africa, where he became a mega star on bootlegged copies of his like album. Elvis like bigger than Elvis I mean he he was a he's such a p- cultural part of that identity to hear South Africans talk about him now I mean he's so revered turns out that uh, there was this misinformation about him nobody knew very much about him but there was a rumor that he'd killed himself turns out he's alive he's still alive and the documentary showcases this uh, you know undis- the, this discovery of how he had been a mystery for so long some of the corruption that went that probably went into place that prevented him from ever getting any of those royalties and also they talked to his daughters um, I found out he, you know he actually went on tour he came through Austin I saw him and so with, did you see him with a South African oh my gosh so it was a life-changing experience so if for you haven't person. seen searching for super it's just searching for sugar man it's just one of those document cultural documentaries that are just landmarks that you have to watch and so I'm glad I finally watched it and I paid three whole dollars and rented it even because it's not streaming anywhere was that like on a on Amazon. iTunes yeah. or something? It was on Amazon. Cool. Well, that's my good. That's great, Addy. I love it. Uh, Omar, sir, would you like to give us your toast? Uh, so my kids are watching uh, a series of unfortunate events on Netflix, and it's season two of the Lemony Snicket series. And like, I'm kind of half watching it. Like, I'm watching it over their shoulders, or I'll catch it in the room as they're as they're seeing it. So I'm not actually invested in the story because I can't really follow what's going on. Except, oh, the, the orphans are here now, and there's something terrible happening to them. Uh, but I was really charmed by the first season. I watched most of the first season and really liked it. I really liked the actors involved in it. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris is Count Olaf. Uh, Patrick Warburton, Putty from Seinfeld, is. Lemony Snicket is a narrator, and he's just brilliant. He just, and they show him, you know, in it, so he actually gets to wander with in and out of scenes. Uh, it's just dark and hilarious, and well acted, and the, the scenery is gorgeous. I felt like the first season relied too much on CGI; like all the backgrounds felt like they were in Star Wars. And the second season, I think they sort of took notice of that, and now all the backgrounds look like real sets and real like locations. Uh, it's just so like. I'll just catch bits of, jo- of jokes and pieces of it and be like, that's so clever. And, oh, that's such a good line. And, oh, that actor's amazing and you know, in this weird, you know, villainy role. So it's it's one of those shows for kids that's 
dark for kids, you know, in the, in the good way, in the in the way that it's like it, it's just dark enough that you're like, I wonder if my kids should be watching this. There's there's like actual death in this. You've been into this lately, like shows with some bite, like yeah, yeah you're moving away from the saccharine because the other show might handle it because the other Next show time it's <laughs> saw. <laughs> The other show my kids are watching is Garfield. So it's like, I'd rather they watch this <laughs> yeah, than yeah. the darkness of Garfield's lasagna pan or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, it's really good. Lots of actors you'll recognize, character actors pop up on this show in minor roles. And there's just something about the tone and the way it's put together and the way it looks that it's just it's delicious. It's just uh, such a treat to watch it. Even if you're only catching bits and pieces of an episode, you'll catch funny jokes and lines and visual gags. Uh, it's just so well put together. I think there's only going to be three seasons is the plan. Uh, so this is the second season. The third season will be the end of it, uh, I guess, based on the last three or four books. So if you're a Lemony Snicket fan, they're doing it right. Netflix is really nail, nailing this property really well. I'm a well. Neil Patrick Harris fan, so I'm He's so good in it. See him. He seemed like a chameleon just in that role. It's, so it, I, I just saw some clips on, on a show the other day. It seemed a little gimmicky the first season, but I feel like he settled into it. And now it like it's it's villainy and hammy and funny and pathetic all at the same time. It's, he's really good in that role. Tolly, cool. All right, so I'm listening to a new podcast called Intelligent Squared, and it's actually it's new to me. I don't know if it's new, period, but um, it is. It just gets these. It's a debate. It's a live debate in front of a live audience, and not only do they have a debate, but they score them at the end. Mm-hmm. So they come in with the topic question. The one I just listened to was, "Have dating apps killed romance?" And so they'll poll the audience at the beginning, and so like 30% agree. 40% disagree and 30% undecided. And then they'll have the whole debate and the audience will resubmit their answers oh. and the side that's moved the most up is the winner. So what a great idea. So there are show. so there are stakes and um, it's they get really great thinkers for this too. It's not the same sort of debaters. It's different every time. So Manoush Samarodi, one of the the, co- the host of Note to Self was one of the panelists on this have dating apps killed romance, and uh, but then I there's some other more um, wonky ones. Uh, I, Ross, I listened to one called "Is Universal Basic Income the Safety Net of the Future," and mm. that was fascinating. And it, I mean, it swayed me. Well, it I, get, I, absolutely that swayed me. Do you, are you into universal income now? Well, I was, and now I'm not. Interesting, but not for the reasons okay. that you think. I mean, like they. The anti side really makes a passionate humanitarian case for like why it would actually further disenfranchise poor people. Wow. So like Eric. it's really fascinating. So anyway, Intelligence Squared, it's on iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. I highly recommend it. Thanks, Thanks, Holly. Thanks guys. Your recommendations. That's our show. She's Addie, he's Omar, I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com. You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672. This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We couldn't do this show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your 
weird home for sale yard signs. Until next week, we'll see you at the Statesman Cap 10K. Mm-hmm.